All right, here we go. One, two, three, four. Hello and welcome to Thinking Religion. I'm Thomas Whitley. I'm Sam Harrelson. So, um, yeah, so <laughs> so you ate a Big Mac for the first time in your life today? Is this right? <laughs> I did. I've never had a Big Mac before. I don't understand how you've, like, I can understand making a choice. Like, I don't know the last time I went to McDonald's. Like, it's been probably at least a year, maybe probably longer. But I don't know how you get to this stage in life never having eaten a Big Mac. I know, and I can still smell it on my fingers. <laughs> it's kind of, <laughs> You're going to be licking your fingers throughout the show. I keep touching my face, and I'm like, oh, ah, don't do that. Uh, I mean, it, it was good. I, I will not lie. Uh, you know, I, I have my, my phases with vegetarianism, and I'm very kind of hippy-dippy on the whole food stuff, right? So, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're super conscious about what you eat, which right. is good. Right, but not what I drink. Right, well. Cheers. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> Maker's Mark is completely vegan. Um, and I wear vegan shoes and I have a vegan belt and all that stuff. But uh, in terms of food, like we're we're very, very, very intentional about that style. So we, we do like, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the silly Whole Foods, Trader Joe's things. And then we have Blue Apron and I get my vegetarian meals from that. And they're really good. I had a ramen today that was amazing. But it got to be like, uh, like 6 o'clock. And I hadn't eaten um, since about 10 a.m. And I thought, okay, well, I need some food. I'm going to run downstairs and just grab a granola bar, which I normally do. You know, like one of our, again, hippy-dippy little you know, gluten-free about a uh, paleo diet granola bars. And a cube of coffee. And a cube of coffee, which I actually left in Greensboro, much like my, oh. my pack of coffee cubes, um, which are amazing, by the way. So... Uh, uh, I had to go check the mail at the office, and I had to go do this and this, and I'm driving, and I'm hungry, and I was like, oh, well, there's that McDonald's, and I haven't been there, like in, <laughs> like you said, God knows how long, maybe a year, and I thought, well, I can, I'll get a chicken sandwich, yeah, McDonald's, I like their fries, whatever, so I pull in, and, right. and I'm sitting there, and, and it's a long line, and I just kind of pull up on my phone, like, hey, what are the best meals from McDonald's? <laughs> you, you, should, you have to google this, this is i amazing. google this and and i found this list on thrillist which is a site that looks pretty cool and they they go through the 22 top meals of mcdonald's and i'm sitting there reading it trying not to be annoyed because it's 6 15 and we have to be back and and you know get the show going and number one was the big mac and they went through why the big mac was so much better and i, I roll up and i look at it and i was like well you know, the chicken sandwich is like 700 calories. The Big Mac is 800 calories. Never really had one of those. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I, I ordered it and uh, and ate it. And it was it was not bad. I, I could see why people get into that repetition of convenience food. And your body hasn't rejected it yet? Not yet. <laughs> Maybe it's the maker's mark. <laughs> right. but, uh, <laughs> I hope it happens right in the middle of the show. Uh, yeah. We're definitely not going to edit that out if it does. No, no. And, <laughs> and I actually drank some Diet Coke with it, which I also – I don't do soft drinks. So, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen to my internal organs tonight. But <laughs> I'll take an extra dose of my crazy vitamin regimen. Well, the good news is, like, even if it – even if none of this happens during the show, you can just put it all up on Periscope or Facebook Live after the show. Yeah, I'll, I'll live stream so my intestinal yeah. uh, issues. That, right. <laughs> that'll be just as thrilling as live streaming Democrats on the floor of the yes. House. 
Yeah, you'll probably actually get more views. <laughs> I'm sure. What was funny was one of the Periscope streams last night had more views at a certain point than CNN had viewers. Really? Yes. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah, like this is welcome to 2016. Well, right? people don't believe me when when I tell them, and they ask about Thinking.fm and, and the podcast stuff, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, you know I'm doubling down this year, and we're going to do Thinking Politics again, and I'm, I'm starting a marketing show, and we're doing this show, and we're bringing back this other show, and, you know, Thompson and I do Thinking Religion, and there's Thinking Out Loud, and people say, well, it, does anyone really listen to that? I'm like, yeah, you know, a few thousand people listen, but if you turn into or tune into a uh, like a MSNBC show in the middle of the day, according to the rankings, they're getting about a thousand, two thousand, three thousand viewers. Like, we reach it just as many people as you know some kind of countdown show in the middle of the day, which yeah. blows my mind. But <laughs> you know, it's it's a reality. Um. Yeah, so I'm just looking up, like, oh, let's see, like, MSNBC viewership. Like, let's see what I can find. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think I think you're right. Um, it's this is where we're going, and I think we had we had one of the best pictures um, over the past, you know, 36 hours um, of what live streaming video can do. And amazingly, it came from people that you would think are not very tech savvy, right? right, right. Um, members of the U.S. House. Yeah, and and they had planned this. They made this plan, right? So if you don't, if you not if you don't know what happened, I don't know how you would not know what happened. But uh, House Democrats staged a sit-in in the well of the House um, for over twenty-five hours. Started shortly after eleven a.m. on Wednesday morning, ended around noon, shortly after noon on Thursday afternoon, uh, and basically saying we're gonna we're gonna sit here until. Um. You know, they vote on gun bills, you know, that, that we want them to vote on. Um, you know, got a lot of coverage or whatever, but they planned this over the weekend, the weekend before, and they they knew pretty much going into it that the videos, would, the cameras would be shut off when the house was um, called into recess because C-SPAN pulls the stream, but C-SPAN doesn't control the when the cameras are on or off. They only right. get, the, you know, the house... The Speaker of the House actually is the one that controls that. And typically, when you go into recess, this camera shut off. And so they did. And so some of the members of Congress had their phones and their chargers and threw a stream up on Periscope and Facebook Live and multiple of these streams going on. Um, and it was it was amazing. So C-SPAN finally decided, yeah, we're going to pull this stream. MSNBC was pulling it. CNBC, CNN was pulling it. Right. So major news networks were pulling streams from Periscope and from Facebook Live and showing them on network television. I mean, it, it was just it was kind of an amazing moment and made me think like, God, to be in the room of the people running Periscope right now, right? The Twitter board or whatever, like. How amazing would that have been? Like, are you serious? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's it's interesting that, you know, uh, these politicians were using Periscope for things like uh, – I think what happened was maybe a staffer told one of them, hey, you have this thing on your phone that we put on there because sometimes we, you know, right. live stream you at a, at a, constitu- a constituency event and, you know, you, you could broadcast. And they thought, oh, that's a good idea. And then, you know, you could tell that kind of spread. It's just like when, you know, there, there's – uh, kind of that that cool app that all the all the dads latch on to um right you know because uh oh wow i saw this one dad do this i'm gonna do that too and 
it, it felt like it had that ripple effect to it because at first <laughs> they were uh, the C-SPAN stream I was watching last night was in portrait mode up and down <laughs> right yeah and you're like no no, no, no turn, like, your turn, turn, turn your phone just turn it sideways and so finally they did that and then i was like why well, aren't they using youtube live like yeah. is this you know native advertising from twitter or periscope see that's and that's what i was really like like which uh, member of congress did twitter get to and say hey we call it when did this thing right. like hey. <laughs> we've got an app that will do this for you um, and then, oh, by the way, yeah, when you're when all these networks pull our stream, it's going to have a nice Periscope logo in the upper left hand corner. Exactly, and and you you know that those streams are getting much more traffic than a C-SPAN ever gets. Oh yeah, right, the great C-SPAN <laughs> I mean, spike of 2016. Yeah. Um, but well, the other thing is that it was the live streaming video and the you know Twitter hashtags hashtag No Bill No Break that actually made it become a big national issue because it would not have had it not been for live streaming. Like even if they were just tweeting it and taking pictures, it would not have become a big deal. Right. I mean, it would, it might've broken into the trending topics, but it would not have been the top trending topic for over 24 hours. Right. But because they had the video to go with it, it spread throughout the country and it became this viral sensation. And I mean, that that's, what's like amazing, right. About live streaming video and about social media is it has the ability to do things that traditional uh, media models just can't do. Well, you know, a couple of things. Number one, when uh, the plane landed in the Hudson, Right in New York a couple yeah. of years ago. Well, not a couple. It was like 2008, I believe. That was really a watershed moment for Twitter. And it was one of the first times that Twitter made the national stage and people in the news industry started, or journalism industry, started saying, oh, okay, well, this is really interesting and this is something we should uh, you know, use. And, and all of a sudden, every Fox News, MSNBC, right. CNN show are, are just reading Twitter, <laughs> you know, basically. And well, it's what it is, right? I mean, if you if you watch a show now, it's like, oh, well, you know, it's just, Donald yeah, Trump uh, said this on Twitter, and then Hillary Clinton said this on Twitter. Yeah, it's Shepard yeah. Smith just reading Twitter with the big screens right. in, in the background. Um, and I use Twitter as my news source. I mean, I, I interact there a great deal, and and we have friends and fans on, on the show that of the show that that interact with us via Twitter, and it it's an interactive platform. But for me, it's more of a kind of my news platform. Even though I have a big TV here in my office, I rarely if ever have it on because <laughs> yeah. i'm just sitting here with a whole monitor of tweet deck and and this is kind of my in inbox of, of news um much to the chagrin of many of my friends and facebook followers who are like why do you keep posting this stuff but um well you know so thinking about those watershed moments in, in terms of like what twitter had um periscope a couple of years ago there was a fire in new york city at, at a um, in an apartment right after Periscope and Meerkat had launched and Periscope and Meerkat were sort of fighting for, um, for viewers, if you will, at that point. Yeah. And now Meerkat's pivoted and, and does something else. Uh, but Periscope really is, is kind of the, the leader in the space and, and Twitter, you know, for better or for worse is, has something on their hands. If they know how to market this in the right way, can really do something with it because I don't think Facebook live is ever going to have the same, um, draw to it because facebook doesn't feel like a live platform you know right exactly and that and that's what twitter has and it's what twitter's always had and that is their strength right so as they're trying to become more and more like facebook where they need to continue to remember not to is and i and they're talking like they're going to but is remembering that their strength is real time 
Exactly. And, and, and that's what you saw uh, with the dim sit-in in the house as well is it's, it's the real-time thing that, yes, it's, it's a bit ephemeral in that you'll get a million people in for an hour and they may drop out. But that million people for that hour are, is much more engaged than you know, having 200,000 people for three hours or whatever. Right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to mean a lot more kind of in the long run uh, to the platform. So, yeah, I mean, it's – I don't know. I was just – I was glad for various political reasons to see them doing that even though I don't actually think – to build, I don't, I don't, I don't know. The bills they're voting on, I don't actually think are that great. I had this whole Twitter essay rant about it a, a week or so ago, which you can go back and read if you want to. But, um, but it's just nice to see like Democrats actually like doing something, right? Yeah. Taking some action. Uh, but I'm also thinking like, what a great moment for live streaming video. Um, and, and maybe I should, I don't know, like, Maybe that's what's wrong with the world, some people would say. But I just thought it was fascinating that, I mean, like, how do you, like, you're, you have people laying in their bed at night watching a stream of members of Congress on Periscope. Like, it's just kind of amazing when you sit back and think about it, you know? Well, and and it's funny because the same thing happened in 2008, and the Republicans were the ones that that did the sit in. Right. And Nancy Pelosi turned the lights off on them and everything. Exactly. And there was no Periscope. Twitter was there, but no one was using Twitter in this capacity. Right. And we didn't know about it. <laughs> you know, and and uh, Paul Ryan and everyone else was decrying, you know, well, not Paul Ryan at the time, but, you know, the, the I forgot who this, the, uh, their minority leader was at the time. Dick Durbin, maybe? Anyway, no. Anyway, uh, so they were, you know, talking about the, the loss of democracy and how this was a terrible thing. And now it's like, no, F you, we can just turn on the, you know, the Periscope stream. Right. And, and go that route. Um, but, uh, you know, but this week, uh, I was in Greensboro for most of the, of the week. Just got home uh, a couple hours ago, basically, uh, from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship General Assembly. And I've been nonstop today trying to find, you know, news and hashtags, or whatever, um, you know, just a, of people tweeting from the conference because I'm trying to stay in touch. and right. You know, figure out what's going on and, you know, are we going to vote over the LGBTQ issue or, or you know, what's going to happen with the mission budget and blah, blah, blah. And you said that, that Trinity was watching the PCUSA uh, general conference from Yeah, they're, from Portland, they're, live they're streaming. at General Assembly and they're in Portland. And if you go to the website, they have a live streaming video of it. And, I mean, people are all over Twitter using the appropriate hashtag, right? Uh, GA222 because it's 222nd General Assembly. Um, and... Yeah, it's like you you can actually really be involved, which is what these platforms are for. Whereas, like, you're not getting that with CBF because there's just not that many people that are kind of on it. Oh, Mariana just texted me and said that Dinah Butler Bass is doing the sermon tonight. Yeah, I saw. I did see that on Twitter actually. It, she's skyping in. Or she's skyping in to do the sermon. <laughs> Mariana just texted me and said, "Yeah, I didn't realize she was skyping in." I was like, "Wait, what?" That's funny. Speaking of live I mean, streaming. Yeah, speaking of live streaming video, there you go. That's really interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> so it, it's a way to, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a big difference, right, with what's going on at CBF and what's going on with the PCUSA General Assembly. Um, and that PCUSA, like, provides the stream for you, and they have a live stream of, you know, anytime they have, like, a session going, you know, when there are large sessions going on. And then stuff that goes on the screen there in the conference hall, like shows up in a little box. It's admittedly 
somewhat difficult to read, but it still shows up in a, like a picture in a picture box, so you can see what they're seeing on the screen too. Um, and yeah, I mean they're but you know, that's doing it right cool, though. Yeah, I mean, I doing mean, it as as well as they can without having like a huge budget, like you know a network television station would have. Yeah, like Trump TV or whatever. <laughs> like Trump TV. <laughs> Coming soon to yeah, it's gonna it's you. gonna do as well as Blaze, I guess, or Vice TV or Vice, yeah. Um, all right, so it, when we think about this, before we move on, uh, I was on a, another podcast today, and we we're talking about Snapchat and how it works for marketers and, and marketing, and uh, you know, I, I was on with a with an older audience, people my age, middle aged people, <laughs> <laughs> and we we're all like, we don't know how the hell this thing works, but I, I was trying to to describe Snapchat stories. And I was talking about what you do. It's like your stories. And I'm like, it's not just people puking, puking, you know, rainbows or whatever. Like there's some really interesting stuff going on in terms of people telling a story throughout the course of a day. And I, I subscribe to 20 or 30 people that, you know, I care about and I watch your stories and it's, it gives you a little glimpse into their life. And yes, you know, it's curated and it's, it's, it's not real life, whatever. But I mean, you and I haven't seen each other but you know a handful of times over the course of the last five years but i feel like i I can kind of get a little glimpse into what's going on with you through things like that you know your tweets and everything else but but really those that visual element that snapchat provides is really interesting so i was thinking from i don't know from from an academic or, or from a pastoral or whatever situation like it just seems that those that that ephemeral type of communication, whether it's, it's Twitter where your tweets really disappear over time because no one goes back and looks at, you know, like, like you said, you can go back and read my tweets. No, no one's going to go back and read your tweets. No. Well, the other thing is Twitter only actually holds um, a certain number yeah, of them a certain number of years, anyway, right. which is why I have like all the tweets, I, like all my interactions on Twitter and everything, everything I do on Twitter uh, through if this and that flows into my Evernote as well so that I can – have my own archive of it right and people say that snapchat is narcissistic but at the same time you're not leaving breadcrumbs behind and you're not going to be able to go back and get those pictures or those conversations or those interactions because they are ephemeral and it's people like you and me who archive all of our twitter stuff and i'm like no actually maybe we're the real narcissist because because <laughs> we want to keep our stuff keep all our thinking, shit. right right yeah okay like facebook isn't narcissistic like come on right, right, then if right. you think about it like so there's all like a lot of these same people I feel like are saying, oh no, you gotta like have person to person conversation, which I think really is great. I think it's super valuable, but like you don't save that anywhere, right? It's just as ephemeral as a snap on Snapchat is. Yeah, exactly, and, and I think we're going back to that, you know. And the people decry like a, using emoji or using the Snapchat stickers or, or Facebook stickers or whatever, and they're like, oh, that's so stupid. But we do the same things when we, sh- you know, shrug in real life. Um, yeah, roll our eyes and yeah. <laughs> right. So my, I, I was cooking dinner for my my daughters the other day, and I asked my six year old because she doesn't like she doesn't like Mexican food except for taco bowls. Donald Trump. <laughs> so I said, "Hey, you know, we're making Mexican food tonight. Uh, what would you eat?" And she does the shrug thing, just like Hillary Clinton in that GIF, you know, or or GIF yeah. where Hillary's doing that. <laughs> When she's talking about her email server, <laughs> so I just yeah. I immediately cracked up and pulled out my phone and brought up the Giphy app and showed her the GIF, <laughs> and she thought it was hilarious. Uh, she thought it was hilarious um, because she's a Bernie fan at six years old. 
<laughs> I've done my job. So she's you know starts doing this. So every time I ask her a question now, she she, she does, <laughs> does this shrug with with the Hillary Clinton face, where it's like I don't know, do you wipe it? <laughs> and uh, it cracks me up every single time. It's still funny, like uh, two weeks later. So I, I think you know, yes, it, it, it's it's one thing to have these memes and gifs and and emoji that are representing you know, human responses and you've got to be careful with that, but it's the same thing we do in real life. Right. Anyway. I, I, th- I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I, th- I think we're just, you know, we're still at the very early stages of, um, you know, live video and, and Snapchat and some of these other platforms. And we're still trying to figure out how best to use them um, and how to use them in various ways. Right. And some people are, you know, doing a really good job of like actually using their snap story to tell a story or right? Jim Caskeet um, does a really good job of this and he lives in New York. And so when he's like walking around, walking, you know, he serves on staff at a church and he's like walking around, you know, walking to church or something. And he'll say, all right, I've, we're going to go on an adventure today. And he'll like tell a story through a bunch of different, you know, short 10 second videos on Snapchat. Um, and then, you know, like, you know, I follow GQ for instance, and they're at, um, you know, fashion week in Paris or whatever. So you know, they're like snapping them being at Dolce Gabbana and Versace and, you know, like Maserati cars and they're showing, you know, dudes on the runway and all this stuff Or they'll show like, Hey, these new Kanye West sneakers just got released. And so here we're going to look at them and do it like a story where you're kind of like, Oh, that's cool. And it's not, you know, you don't feel like oh, I got to sit down and devote five minutes to watching this review or something. I don't know. You yeah. know, and so like people are really kind of figuring out the platform and figuring out really like cool, interesting things to do with it. And um, I, I just think we're at the beginning of this. And I think it's going to be great. I think we're going to begin to I mean, what I want to see is how are we going to, um, you know, kind of transition this into like the education um world as well you know that's what i'm interested in like politics is using it some i mean you know the hillary clinton team on snapchat's pretty good you know they're pretty good they're, so they're pretty good but like yeah. sports teams especially so the cubs i follow on snapchat and yeah. it's, it's awesome uh nascar <laughs> even really yeah. awesome and and so if i miss a race i can just watch the story from that you know sunday afternoon and kind of get all the highlights and it's right. really interesting Right. And so, so, and when you mentioned that, you know, you think, I'm thinking also like kind of this, I don't know, I don't want to call it a battle, but you know, there's some tension right between new media and old media. Um, and you think like ESPN, for instance, is having huge issues with losing viewership, particularly with sports center, their kind of flagship show and having all these big issues. uh, And uh, like, why would you go to that and, and, you know, see like, okay, I don't really care about all this other stuff. And why not, if you want the highlights from the race, just follow NASCAR on Snapchat and you get the highlights you want. Yeah. Right. And, and I I mean, Lindsay, uh, Cesarnik, who's on sports center, like Zarniak, Cesarnik, she's the wife of my college friend, Craig Melvin. So I went to college and we're good buddies. So, you know, I keep up with them and, and, you know, I don't really know her as well as Craig, but the, um, I, I watched SportsCenter the other night uh, in Greensboro because I had a few minutes and I just took the iPad down to the hotel bar and I was like, well, you know, I'll work here for a minute. And it, it's not what it used to be. Like, even the energy of the show feels different. And I was like, this is, this is not the SportsCenter that I know. Yeah. You know, it just feels like that whole model is, is rapidly turning over, whether it's SportsCenter or church or 
even like being in a classroom, you know, yeah. it feels like something is happening and we don't know what it is. And it's time we stop. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you mean. Bow, bow, bow. Uh, I, I've got my guitar here. I can play it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think this era that we're getting into with with bots and Snapchat and and live streaming is uh, it, it's going to change so much so much uh, of, of the way that we take in content, but also the way that we look at content from a cultural point of view. You know, it's like, like the Brexit uh, yeah. vote today. You know, I was watching a, a live stream of people counting the votes. I'm getting news that, that, you know, most Americans aren't getting because I wanted to look that up. Does that make me better or worse? You know, who knows? But it's different. We're back in the day, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, you watch Dan Rather or you watch Walter Cronkite, and we all got the same news, and we all got the same memes, and we all got the same information. And that's really threatening to the people in authority, whether it's denominations or whether it's universities or whether it's, you know, sports teams or, or, or the news media. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. It's about controlling the narrative. And with right. democratized platforms like this, you're not able to control the narrative. Exactly. Our, our uh, friend of the show, Sheldon Steen, uh, just <laughs> tweeted a funny <laughs> picture saying he's trying to follow both uh, GA222. What is that? Is That's that the General Assembly? General Assembly, the PCSA General Assembly. Yeah. And the uh, NBA draft. Yeah. And he's live streaming both of them. <laughs> and, uh, anyway. So thank you for listening, Sheldon. Um, speaking of, of Sheldon Steen, did you see that picture of Falwell Jr.? this week <laughs> yes i'm sure he'll love the connection there i was thinking of the, the segue i was going with was speaking of not being able to control the narrative ah that's even better maybe. right um because falwell lost this one i mean it was just absolutely <laughs> it was amazing thinking? watching it happen <sighs> all right you want to you want to explain okay so here's what happened jerry falwell jr son of the late jerry falwell uh president of liberty university the largest uh, evangelical university in the world non-accredited i think or at least not accredited by or at least their online programs or whatever not accredited um are they not accredited? But, well i don't think their online programs are um maybe like some university well i know that like they're the largest in the world because they have so many international students that do it online really so, um but anyway you know huh. liberty right we we know about liberty we watch it through every election cycle i mean bernie sanders you right um and, you know, kind of all the Republicans have to go and talk. And Ted Cruz launched his Ted Cruz. And, yeah, launched his campaign there. That's, isn't that where – that's where Donald Trump had his infamous two Corinthians. Oh, right. Um, you know, bit. So – but then uh, Falwell Jr. comes out and endorses Trump. Um, a lot of people at Liberty have a problem with it. Um, a lot of other evangelicals had a problem with it, but Falwell was like, hey, you don't – you know, when you're trying to run a like a business or a successful university, you don't always pick like – the best Christians, you pick the best people for the job or something like that. So I'm not still not sure how he picked Trump, but nonetheless. And um, so then he poses in a picture, posted on Twitter with Trump. And um, I think that was Falwell Jr.'s wife, right? Um, was it on the other side of Trump? Yes, that was his uh, and, smoking hot wife. And uh, right, that's, you know, the evangelical pastors always say, oh, I got a smoking hot wife. I want to thank, I want to thank um, Jesus Christ for my smoking hot wife. Right. Um, and what's amazing is like, Trump 
Falwell Jr. standing there with thumbs up, and then on the wall right behind them is fra- a framed cover of Trump on the cover of Playboy. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. And then, so like immediately, Twitter was like, uh, seriously? <laughs> like, you know, there's a Playboy on, like, you're posing with a Playboy, and like I mean, it just kind of went crazy and then Falwell comes back and is basically like hey he, he was out it was with, is without sin cast the first stone and he's like you know oh it's funny all these people that you know love the Jesus you know ate with publicans and sinners are now you know mad at me so it's like so you're saying like Trump is a publican but you're Jesus and oh it's just yeah just amazing I don't know like th- this is why you know this is what Twitter is made for I, I just can't imagine Jerry Falwell Sr. doing that. No. I mean, I, I I disagreed with him, mostly. But he seemed to be a man that had his principles, you know? Like, And yeah, he was involved in politics, but I don't see him going to Trump Tower <laughs> to the, you know, the, the, the ninth circle of hell and <laughs> giving a thumbs up there with, uh, with, with Trump by the, by the Playboy poster or, or frame picture yeah. i mean so so my my first reaction to this was okay we're, we're all getting upset over you know the the playboy thing why aren't we getting upset over the fact that jerry falwell jr who's president of liberty which is a, the largest evangelical university in our country is posing with donald trump giving a thumbs up like the Right, you know that alone should That's be like. The what the hell is image, that? Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, what, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Um, you know, the Playboy stuff is is got its BuzzFeed kind of uh, you know salacious. Uh, you know, you won't believe what happens next thing to it, but it's like how disappointing is that? Like, what other? If that was any other religious leader posing with someone like Donald Trump. You know, we would say, oh, well, look, there's Kim Jong-il and, and his, uh, you know, whatever uh, faith leader posing in front of, you know, a, a poster of Chairman Mao. It, it just it boggles my mind that that we so easily easily dismiss these Christian leaders who are who are throwing themselves at, at the feet of Donald Trump. Well, no, I mean, I, I... politics aside, I mean, if yeah. they were doing that with Hillary, I would say the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, one of the things to me, one of the positive things to come out of this cycle uh, and seeing so many, you know, evangelicals cozy up to Trump, which is exactly what you and I expected to happen. Yeah. Um, is that finally, I think, though maybe not, but at least some good quality journalists are realizing that, oh, hey, like evangelicals care about other things than whether you call yourself a born again Christian or not. You know, there's this idea for so long, and, it, and it's still very much alive and well in a lot of corners, um, that, you know, of, of voting blocks in general, which I think are just generally uh, give you bad analysis. When you think of groups that happen to share one characteristic in common, all voting the same way or something for the same reason. I mean, it's just, it's crazy how much money people make to say, Stupid things like that, right? Um, mm-hmm. But now people are beginning to realize, oh, hey, evangelicals have all these other issues they care about. 
just like every other American, right? They care about the economy. They care about uh, military. They care about immigration. They care about health care. They care about strength. They care about nationalism, whatever it is, right? There's all these things. But for so long, the myth was and, – and, and I will also say I do think that the, you know, the religious right um, helped propel this myth. Uh, the, the, but the myth was that basically if you can be the most Bible-believing candidate or at least present yourself as such, then you're going to win the evangelical because all they care about is whether you're a Bible-believing candidate or something like that. You know, um, And now, now we're realizing like, hey, these are actual human beings that – are complicated just like all the rest of us are. So, I mean, you know, if it if it gets some, it is getting some journalists to kind of realize that, which I think is good. Um, and and on, on the flip side, I've seen a lot of people from, I guess, my tribe that are worried about this growing. I mean, not growing. It's been going on since the eighties, right? But but this idea of. Um, candidates and, and, and American politics wrapping themselves around Jesus and then American Christianity wrapping Jesus with a flag. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people questioning lately, like, do we actually want to have an American flag in the sanctuary of our of our Christian churches? Like, is that is that kosher? Do we really want to do that? Because, you know, there's some issues. Do we really want to put a American flag in our... Um, but I, I've been in churches here in South Carolina where there's an American flag, there's a South Carolina flag, and there's the Christian flag, which itself has many issues, yeah. uh, in a church. And for me, that's the type of shit that Jesus would have come in and, like, flipped tables up. You know, like, I don't think, for me, that would have been okay. Um Right, it's just it's just nationalism. It, it's it's nationalism right? going to Sloped in something else, yeah. Right, so like you say, you know, maybe the good part of this is that, you know, the, the mainstream journalist sort of uh, industry, journalism industry, is kind of realizing, well, maybe evangelicals have this other dimension, but also within Christianity, maybe we're realizing, wait a minute, maybe uh, we need to push back on some of this smoking hot wife, thank you Jesus, you know. Dear Baby Jesus, Ricky Bobby type religion that's that's right. really taken over kind of the mainstream ideal of, of what being a, a true Christian means. Right. And realizing, too, that like evangelicals aren't the only self-identified Christians in this country. Right. Exactly. Right? In fact, they're not even close to the majority of the self-identified Christians in this country. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's just the, the Southern Baptists are the second largest, you know, group behind the, the Roman Catholic. Behind Roman Catholic, right. But as a as a measure of the whole, right, we have a country that what still more than seventy percent of the population identifies as Christian. And yeah. you have well, what percentage of that that identifies as evangelical? A rather small percentage, right? And, and that's only going to continue so, to to decrease to, as, exactly. as we have more immigrants yeah. and we have more Latinos and Hispanics coming into the country. And so, in a way, we may begin to see a, the pendulum swing a little bit back toward kind of what's typically talked about as mainline denominations, right? Having kind of more, quote-unquote, press um, for their views. I don't know that that's any better, right? And thinking about mainline uh, Christians as a voting block as opposed to thinking about evangelical Christians as a voting block, I don't think it is any better uh, from an analytical standpoint. But I do think that um, it is necessary, Right to continue to problem problematize this idea that well okay Christianity in America is evangelical, yeah, which uh, none of the data bears out. Right, and and so we have the Roman Catholics, 
but then you know back in the 50s and 60s there was a, a very big distinction between what we call mainline protestantism or mainline protestants and what was growing into that evangelical movement uh so you know traditionally we've had what we call the seven sisters of american protestant or protestantism and so you had the the umc the united methodist uh you had the elca which are the lutherans uh the president the pcusa not the pca but the pcusa un trinity uh the episcopal church uh the american baptist and the disciples of christ and the ucc or the uh, the congregationalist folks so typically those were the the seven main traditional protestant denominations and in in that you can lump in the quakers and the reformed church in america and some of those groups right. and they all played into things like the national council of churches and we had this very palpable sense of of cross denominational uh unity you know so up until i would say the late 80s early 90s things like um Ecumenism. I can't talk tonight. Ecumenism. Ecumenism was a a, a major factor in, in uh, at least American Protestant life, um, and and that's died away to some extent because now we have things like this this evangelical movement, which at the height of American Protestant livelihood in the in the fifties and sixties, that was a kind of a fringe movement. Um, so anyway, I, I just, I always think that's interesting that, you know, traditionally the Southern Baptists were never associated with the seven sisters of, you know, of the, of the American yeah. Protestant movement. Uh, and they were the mainline church. They were the, the bulk of things. So if you weren't a Catholic, you were a member of one of those. And if you were crazy and you lived in Alabama, maybe, you know, you're not crazy, but you know what I mean? If, if you were of that ilk, you, you were Southern Baptist. Um, and it was only starting with the, the early seventies, but in, into the mid to late uh, 70s and early 80s that the Southern Baptist Church became what it is and the evangelical movement became what it is. But then, you know, they're, they're sort of lumped in with the charismatics and the fundamentalist. Um, you know, but, but now when people think of American Christians, they think of Southern Baptist, which is very uh, not historical. So yeah, maybe, maybe the pendulum is swinging back and maybe we're going back to something like an understanding of, of Protestant uh, Christianity that that doesn't get uh, confined to something that it's not, which is evangelicalism. Well, you know the problem, right? And how we got here? Money. Well, it's because mankind has bastardized religion. Well, yeah, we got away from the King James. We got we <laughs> no, no, we got away on. from the Latin. We got away from <laughs> the Latin. That's the problem. Well, Thomas, I mean, uh, if, if you think about what the word religion means in Latin. It means re, which is again, and and, and what's it, legios, which means uh, to, to bind. So we're supposed to bind ourselves together again. You know, so this idea that, that um, you know, we have American Christianity now that's so fractured, you know, we, we've just bastardized religion. In case you don't know what we're talking about, we're referencing a Matthew McConaughey uh, interview where he... Granted, not for very long, but did at least for a minute extemporize about uh, the problem that he sees it. And he says that it's his personal belief that mankind has bastardized religion. And he gives this, I don't know, answer that a sixth grader or a seventh grader would give, right? They've looked up some word in the dictionary and now they think they know everything about it, um, right? And 
he gives this bit about the Latin and this is what it actually means. And well, let's actually look at religio and that's not actually what religio means. And yeah, yeah. but I mean, right. Who are we to fault Matthew McConaughey because he doesn't have a PhD and religions of Western antiquity like the rest of us. <laughs> well, Thomas, I mean, you know, when the Mesopotamians said the word religion in Latin, <laughs> right, you know, exactly. they meant one thing and we've, we've bastardized that. Yeah. So, I mean, so this is interesting, right? Just because, I mean, it's this, it's this way of thinking that obviously grates on me and I do not expect everyone to have the, you know, whatever the, have spent the amount of time thinking about this that I have, which is completely fine. Uh, but then to come out and make statements like this about, well, the Latin says this, and because the Latin says this, therefore it means this and we must do this, when you don't actually know Latin, is a little bit bothersome, right? It's the same way with people picking up a keyword study Bible, which was really popular, probably still is, but I knew it was really popular five or ten years ago. And, you know, it was for people who couldn't read Greek or Hebrew and then it would tell them what the Greek or Hebrew said and said, well, it means this, and so we can interpret it this way. Well, I mean, all you have is, uh, granted, all translation is interpretation, but, you know, don't come to me saying that the Hebrew root is this, and so therefore we know that this about Jesus or whatever, right? You don't you don't know Hebrew. Like, I don't know. You know, so it's this, like— But, but it, there are three— It's, 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 three... The, it's the just enough knowledge to be dangerous type bit, but that's kind of where you are, and that's where I feel like McConaughey is here. Yeah, there there are three words for love in the Bible, Thomas. Oh God! There's agape, there's philos, and there's eros. And what Paul's talking about in in Colossians <laughs> is agape love. Even if the Greek doesn't freaking say agape, right? This is what they're like. It well, doesn't Paul matter didn't write to Colossians, them. But yeah, you know, uh, yeah. And see that, and that again, like, is completely ridiculous, right? And we talked about this last week when Brooks opens his. David Brooks opens his New York Times piece and says, you know, three words for love that the ancient Greeks had. Well, you know, one of the words isn't even Greek. It's Latin. And two of the words don't have anything to do with love. Like, come <laughs> right. on, man. Right. But preachers are bad about this, too. Right. Any, you know, agape love is love that talks about God. It's like, no, mm. like, just read some Greek. <laughs> you don't even have to read Greek outside of the New Testament to know that that's not true about how the word is used. Right. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm a stickler about arguments based on language when you don't know the language yeah but but then it's just really and this is probably super i don't know bourgeois of me or whatever i was gonna say it's bourgeois like how how, how can you say anything then i don't know (laughs) we're making it all up anyway i know this right and it's all power struggles all the time and i'm just trying to you know i'm you know, it's a site of contestation, and I'm hoping that my narrative wins out. I completely understand that. But I'm going to continue to fight for my narrative to win out. You're, you're clinging to this uh, objective model of, of understanding Greek when you need to open yourself to the realization that Greek is reflected by your own experiences. Yes, yes, I know. But also, there is other Greek literature outside of the New Testament that can give us a clue about how words are used, right? And words change over time, which we also know. Because, for instance, we know, we'll talk, talk about religio and superstitio, right? So we have to start with saying, okay, by the way, religion, quote-unquote, in antiquity uh, didn't actually exist, at least not in the way that we think about religion today. There was no, quote-unquote, separation between church and state or anything like that. Uh, things that we call religion, 
when we that we anachronistically call religion when we look back on the ancient world such as like rituals that may they may have done rites they may have performed to a deity or something like that were not understood as they were understood as part of one's civic duty right so not kind of separate from there was no this, there was no sacred versus profane or anything like that no matter how much Eliade wanted that to be true <laughs> right okay um but and then so we'll talk about religio and we talk about superstitio, right? And some people, oh, it's superstition. Well, okay, yes, maybe, but actually superstitio was initially kind of a positive term and we can see that change over time and then it becomes a negative term and it's not superstition the way that we think of superstition. It's kind of like it's like religio, but to the excess, right? If you think about it like that, in the same same way with hieresis, right, which used to be um, which is the word that we get heresy from. It also started out as a neutral or actually somewhat positive term, right? Same thing with uh, Gnostic, started out as a positive term. You wanted to be part of the Gnosticoi. And then later um, it became kind of this negative epithet, right? So this is this is why it's important when you begin making claims about languages that you don't understand that you just maybe don't do that. Right, because English is hard enough to figure out how it works, and this is the language that you know most of us grew up have grown up speaking our entire lives. Um, and so, then to be making claims about languages that you know all you all you've learned how to do is mispronounce a word that somebody else wrote down for you, right? It's, I don't know. I have a problem with that. <laughs> you can't tell. <laughs> you spend a lot of money studying this stuff, so <laughs> yeah, this is true, and a lot of time. But I mean, even this week on Twitter, you know, in the um kind of religious studies, biblical archaeology list that I follow. Uh, there was kind of a spat about things like new research and, and the idea of, um, you know, uh, this had reference to the word pagan and whether or not, you know, Christians use the word pagan to to derisively refer to people who were not Christians in the 4th century or, or was this something that Jesus would have employed to mean someone who you know, was not a Jew, and it, it was an interesting, inter- interesting conversation about the Academy in terms of publishing, but for me, I was like, oh, well, that, you know, I haven't read this research before um, in, in terms of, of, you know, using that word and, and thinking about things that way, so. Right. Yeah, I mean, did, did you see any of that? I, I, I missed that conversation. Yeah, um, yeah. I did see Carrie's piece today that's being published is uh or it's being published but their pre-public um uh, pre-publication yeah, yeah, version right, is out right. um on the gospel jesus wife stuff which i haven't read yet it's long oh but, yeah we, we haven't even talked about that have we yeah but um it's i mean carrie's brilliant and i've followed most everything she said on this so it's it's up and ready for me to read but yeah the gospel jesus wife stuff i feel like we just need to wait and devote a whole show to that uh, later i mean there's so much we could we could have a uh, professor goodacre on for that <laughs> he, he was a big fan of that conversation i would say we could get carrie to come on but i like she wrote this piece and she was like i hope this is the last i have to write about yeah this. i so think she, i think i don't she think wants she wants to, wants to talk about it anymore. <laughs> i don't want to yeah. speak for her but yeah, yeah. So, it, but it but hey carrie if you want to come on uh send me a message on twitter and we'll we'll bring you on to talk about gjw so. <laughs> i love how it's become that too you know it's it, it's not like like the hashtag is GJW GJW like yeah. and and everyone I've followed like when they refer to it they use that that nomenclature and it, it's fascinating yeah. I mean, to see it's, that yeah it's it's great well the other one I think the other one that Carrie likes to use is um, Mrs Christ oh, 
that's yeah. Which is a fun, you know, it's a fun. <laughs> that's episode. good. Yeah. But man, man, one one article. That's a uh, whole, whole can of worms. Can of worms. Yeah. You, you want to save that? Let's save that. Let's save that too, because I have I have some really passionate feelings about this episode. And I should probably let those cool down a little bit before I talk publicly about it. Yeah, no, so, I understand. I understand. Um, so, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, so anyway, I don't know. Matthew McConaughey is great. I actually like Matthew McConaughey. I love, like, how seriously he takes himself, really. Yeah. Interstellar was a terrible movie. I was so upset about that movie. Did I? I just had to throw it out there. Have you seen it? I'm trying to think if I saw Interstellar. Yeah, we went on opening night to the IMAX, you know, no, I didn't 5D, see that. whatever thing. Yeah. I was so excited because I love quantum mechanics and I love science and physics and all that. And, oh, my God, it's terrible. <coughs> I, I'm, I'm choking up just thinking about it. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, um, all right. Last word, Sam. I'm still trying not to cough here. Still trying not to cough <laughs> in the microphone. Um, packing up that Big Mac. Yes, the Big Mac so is it's coming starting. Up. Big Mac and Maker's Mark is not a good combination. Um, think about think about messaging. Think about how what you do right now is going to be impacted in the next ten years by what's coming, because things are going to change very rapidly here. And whether it's you know the 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 realization that there are things that we employ other humans to do and and that we pay people to do that's going to be rapidly replaced by computing algorithms and bots down to the idea that even the the university itself is going to be shaken to its core as is every institution that goes through some kind of a revolution like this um you know we had the printing press we had the industrial revolution and we're just at the beginning of this this next revolution that's really going to shake things up and I feel like we're, you know, we're so set in our ways and we think, oh, that, you know, that's not going to happen in our lifetimes. Right. My, my, my MySpace will be around forever. <clears throat> yeah. Or, or you know, I, I've had this job forever and this is how we do it. And we print out our emails and it's going to be fine. Yes. But if you're going to. If you're not Donald Trump, that's going to change. Yeah. You know, not just that, but just the way you communicate with people. Um, you know, whether it's AR, VR, AI, whatever, like uh, this stuff is really going to start happening quickly. And you've got to think about where you are and what you do. And I mean, from our business, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, you're, you're never going to pay an agency to go out and make a website for you and pay us 10 grand to do that in five years. Like you'll just dump in your content, all your pictures, just like you do with Google Photos. And all of a sudden you'll have a beautiful website. And what will a website look like in five years? You know, so I'm trying to pivot now and make sure that we're we're ahead of that apocalypse that's going to happen to our industry. But I think people in, in the in the university, especially and in the church, are so stuck in this mid 20th century conception of well, we're going to get there. We're going to have LGBTQ rights in the CBF, and, and we're going to hire gay people one day. And we're not going to say that you have to be single and celibate, but for right now, you know, we've got to we've got to go slow. We have to have illumination. We have to talk this through. We have to have intentional processes because that's you know, I mean, you know, Jesus he had a good what thirty, forty, fifty, sixty years of his ministry where he really <laughs> yeah. thought these things through. 
And we're both slow and intentional. You got to go slow it. and intentional. Make sure not to not to upset the people with the money. You don't want to piss off the Pharisees, Thomas. Because if you piss off the Pharisees, then how are you going to pay for these great lunches that we have at General Assembly? You know, I mean, seriously, how, I mean, are, how are we going to afford being deli? at the Four like, Seasons? You know, Jesus loves some Jason's Deli. Yes, and he loves his room at the Four Seasons Resort. And how are we going to have golf days if if we're pissing off the big First Baptist churches? So, all that to say. I, I think there's something about little apocalypses, as Miles Davis called them. He, he always referred to John Coltrane when you heard John Coltrane uh, play saxophone as as uh, every note was a little apocalypse. And I love that imagery. And, and I, I think that's really where we're headed in terms of these little things that are popping up, whether it's Snapchat or whether it's, you know, civil rights, you know, issues or, or whether it's, just the idea that our, our society is changing, and it's not changing slowly anymore. It's changing to the point where we don't need C-SPAN to show us the House of Representatives. Um, and I, I don't think that most institutions get that because institutions are created to preserve themselves. They're not created to push society forwards. So anyway, that's my my mini little apocalyptic rant. Because I think the time is near and the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, get your shit together. Put it in a box. Put your shit in the in the shit museum. And, and get ready for the apocalypse. And uh, as you're thinking about the apocalypse, you need to read the absolutely fantastic essay uh, that went up on Marginalia this week. I did not write it. Uh, Ed Simon wrote it. Uh, the title was Apocalypse is the Mother of Beauty. And it's... It's just fantastic. Right? The premise, and he starts with the Boethius. Oh, yes, he that, does. that was my master's thesis was on Boethius. Yes, and ah. um, so he starts with that, and then he starts with the the premise, like the climate apocalypse, essentially. Um, but he talks about what the humanities has to offer um, in this, and. I mean, one of the best lines, the one that most people are pulling out is at the risk of tautology, what is important about the humanities is the human, the survival of these texts is the survival of humanity. So thinking about – and right, Sam and I have talked about this a lot over, um, over the course of our show is like how do, how do we preserve, right? How do we plan for uh, what Simon is calling a new curating, but how do we plan for – uh, a digital dark age or something like that. Like when when the apocalypse necessarily comes, what are we doing as forward thinkers to help those who will come after us? Anyway, read it. Absolutely uh, fantastic read uh, in Marginalia out this week. So wow. uh, on that note, wow. um, leave you thinking about the end of the world at the end of the show. Um, but that's not the end of the story. You like that? That was good, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of this hymn, right? This is not the end of the story. I don't know that. You don't know that? Okay. Anyway. Um, so some people, our listeners will know it. So if you know that one, let me know on Twitter. Is that like uh, a, like a shine tell Jesus Sam, shine? Tell Sam that it's, it's a legit <laughs> hymn and we'll prove him wrong again as Mary and I, Mariana and I do often about music that Sam has no idea about. Mm. Um but follow us on Twitter. Talk to us on Twitter as uh, some of our other friends of the show and listeners do. We really appreciate that, the feedback that we get there. Um, you can follow Sam at Sam Harrelson. You can follow me at Thomas Whitley. And you can always find more great podcasts at thinking.fm.